0: And we are going to be in the last chapter of the book of Ruth. And to be honest, I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to leave Ruth because um, it's such a beautiful story. And I feel like I could preach quite a few more sermons out of this. Um, but we're going to make our way to the end of chapter Ruth. And I want to begin with a, a little bit of something different. There is a, a point to this, but I want to show some pictures. And uh, I'm going to ask you to identify them now. These are going to be pictures of uh, everyday objects. So none of these are trick-ish images or anything. Uh, The only thing is that they are extremely zoomed up. So they've got, you know, this is a macro. Uh, They've got the macro lens on and see if you can. We'll start with one that's, I think, a little bit easier than the rest. Anybody know what this is? Yeah, Uh, cantaloupe, yep. All right, they're going to get a little tougher now. Strawberry? Eh, good guess. John cheated somehow. <laughs> that is a tomato. All right. Let's see if you get this one. No, nope, this one's not a food actually. A little misdirection there. This is actually the lid of a Coke bottle. All right. Just a couple more here. Oh man, you got that one. <laughs> All right, pencil. pencil, good, there you go. All right, let's see about this last one. Name was right, this is actually right up here. Now, my point, and I do have one, is that, uh, is that this. When you look at any of these pictures, both the picture on the left and the right are correct. They describe the same thing. But when you zoom in too closely, and we could get even closer, of course, you find that you can't identify things, the right things, even though you're familiar with them or should be, just because we're too close and our eyes are seeing only part of the picture. Here's what I'm getting at, our eyes, are designed to work with our mind to see things at a certain uh, context. And when we get too close, we miss the meaning of things. We can see the details, but not what they mean. And that's not just true of our eyesight about little objects. That's true of our day-to-day lives. That's true of of our lives before God, especially as eternal, eternal creatures, right? You and I, we live day-to-day. But the context of our lives can only, in the meaning of it, can only be understood in the larger context of God's eternal purpose and our life as a whole. And that we don't see. So I want to talk about things that we don't see. And I love the book of Ruth because it helps us. We are in a privileged position compared to Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. They're in the story. They see it day to day. We're the ones who, because God inspired this book and preserved it for us, we are now able to see the big context of their lives in a way that they could not on the ground. But what's true of them is also true of us, that there's a day-to-day context in our lives, and then there's a large picture that gives it meaning. And just like Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, we will not see it at the time, through no fault of our own, but through God's guidance, maybe we can have an understanding of the larger picture. That's my hope. Let's pray as we begin. Father, only you can do this, only through your spirit. There are different needs here today, so, so varied. We have different needs within our own life, but let alone from one person to the next. So would you grant your spirit's power and your spirit's clarity? Would you help us to understand what you want to say to us through this book? And then how we should respond to what you say to us. We know, God, that you've said your word, is here. It's given to us as a gift for our teaching, instruction, and training in righteousness. Let that be so this morning, please. Would you help me to remember all the things that would be helpful and forget anything that wouldn't be? And would you let your word transform us this morning? Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right. We're going to come to the end of Ruth, as I mentioned. And I want to summarize the first three chapters because many of us weren't here for some or all of that. And then we're actually going to read chapter four and we're going to explain it and then talk a little bit about the meaning. So that's our roadmap. We're going to summarize. We're going to read. We're going to then talk about chapter four, explain exactly what's going on here, and then what it means for us. So Book of Ruth, four chapters. We know that Naomi is married to a man named Elimelech, whose name means God is king. But things are not looking that way. She's living in the times of judges, a very uh, bad, dysfunctional, evil time within the nation of Israel's history. There's a downward spiral going on in the nation. And that's also reflected in their own lives because there's a famine in their land of Bethlehem, their city of Bethlehem. They go down to Moab. They have two sons, Malan and Chilion. They marry Moabite girls. And yet then Elimelech dies. It's, it's really not a good omen for your story when on the first few verses, the man whose name God is king dies, and then Malon and Chilion die, and Naomi's left, empty, bitter. She's surrounded by death. She leaves behind three graves in, in Moab. She begins to make her way back to Israel, to, to Bethlehem. One daughter goes, as, as Naomi encouraged her to go, she goes back to, to um, Orpah, goes back to her land, and then Ruth does something that goes against her perceived best interest in every way. She looks at this older, poor widow going back to her land, and Ruth clings to her and says, Do not urge me to go. Where you go, I go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you are buried, that's where I'm going to be buried too. And may God punish me every, ever so severely, if even death separates you and I. And... Uh, Naomi looks at this young woman realizes there's nothing she can say. She says, come on. So she goes back to Bethlehem, just as the harvest is starting. Ruth goes out in the field. She begins gleaning, picking up leftover of uh, the barley and the wheat from the fields. She ends up by God's direction, although God's very silent in the big scheme of things. He doesn't do any miracles, doesn't say anything. But he's behind the scenes, and she ends up in, this, in the fields of a man named Boaz, who is a relative and therefore could function... If you wanted to, as a kinsman redeemer. Someone who would buy back the property of, of Naomi and provide an heir. And we'll talk about what that looks like. And then, chapter three, as we looked at last week, uh, Naomi says to Ruth, Why don't you see Boaz would marry you? And uh, she goes to the threshing floor at, at, with Naomi's instruction. She lays down there at his feet. And when he wakes up, Instead of uh, waiting for him to take the initiative about a simple marriage, she asked him to become her, her family's kinsman redeemer. Now, let's let's talk about that just for a second, because it's going to come into the story here, chapter 4 as well. A kinsman redeemer was, number one, a kinsman, so outside of clan, it could be second, third, fourth cousin, or whatever. To redeem meant to buy back the property of the person who was gone. In this case, Elimelech. It was apparently sold off when they went to Moab. Uh, Naomi had the property. She had the rights to buy the property back. I don't think she actually had possession of it, but she could buy the property back. It was still legally that, uh, that in her option there. But to redeem also in this context would mean that Boaz was being asked not only to buy back the property, but also provide an heir for that property through the marriage with Ruth. So if they had a child, that child, though biologically Boaz's, legally would become the child of Malan, her husband, or Elimelech, further, further up the chain there. And when that child came of age, they would receive that property that, would, that Boaz had just paid for uh, free of charge. And uh, so that property and that land would always be known by a Limelech's family line living there. And it would be restoring that land to to that family and restoring that family to the land and therefore to their place in Israel. Otherwise, a Limelech's family was about to go extinct. So she went beyond what Naomi encouraged her to do. She asked not only for marriage, but she asked for a marriage of a certain kind. Of a kinsman redeemer she asked him to fulfill that role and that was a risk because he could have very easily said no uh, as we're going to see why here in chapter four there were reasons why it would not be in his best interest so he tells her wait there is one problem i will do this but there is another kinsman who is closer than i am and apparently in their custom he had the first right so that's where we are in chapter four how is this obstacle going to be taken care of boaz I mean, you read through this. He obviously wants to do this. You you feel like there is a love interest between him and this younger woman, but he's a man of principle, and and he won't do this without uh, without the other kinsman's consent because he has a first right. So how is this obstacle going to be removed? Well, here's what we're told. And I'm just going to read this part here. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. And when the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend. Sit down. And so he went and sat down. And Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. And then he said to the kinsman-redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech, or, I interpret this, selling the rights of it. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. That was a method of legalizing transactions in Israel. And so the Kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, "Buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. And then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people today, you are witnesses, that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon, and I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from among the town records. Today you are witnesses. And then the elders and those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Epratath and be famous in Bethlehem, more literally. May you have a name in Epratath and be famous in Bethlehem. And then through your offspring, the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez who, who Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to his son. And the woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer, if he become famous throughout Israel, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, and, and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and cared for him. And the women in the town said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And this, then, is the family line of Peres. Peres was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashlon, Nashlon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. And what a great word in the book of Ruth on David. Because right the next book, First Samuel is going to tell all about how God brings the nation to Great fullness and glory through David and, and through his son Solomon. Now, let's, uh, let's just go explain what's going on here a little bit in case we miss some of, of the customs and whatnot, and then we'll talk about the meaning here. All right, so what's going on? The town gate would be a place kind of like city hall today or the city of records, where in those times you would engage in, in a, any sort of political or legal decision. So it calls up Boas, calls up the elders. of the town because it's going to be a legal transaction he calls over the kinsman redeemer now now this is interesting Uh, if you're reading this in the original languages you notice something very unusual every other person in the story is mentioned by name right and yet here he calls him basically the the Hebrew equivalent of Mr. So-and-so or an unnamed man now, I presume he didn't really call him that in person, but rather that the narrator substituted a phrase meaning basically so-and-so or an unnamed person for this man's name. It wasn't because Boaz didn't know it or could use it. There's something else going on here. We'll come back to that thought. Anyway, he brings him says, got this business proposition, you have the first right, Naomi's selling the rights to this field, Do you want to buy it? The man's thinking in dollars and, and uh, cents terms, which I think, is why Boaz starts out this way. Get him thinking of this as a business deal. Okay, is this a good investment or not? Okay, yeah, I'll buy it. So for whatever reason, he calculated that whatever he would gain from the use of the field would be more than what he had to pay out for it. And then the other shoe or sandal drops in this case. It uh, says, oh, by the way, when you, uh, when you do this, you also acquire uh, Ruth, the Moabitess, as your wife so that your firstborn child or son can bear the name of a family and carry that on. And he knew where this was going, that when that child came of age, he would not only uh, take the property, he would take it for free. And, uh, and therefore, all the money he had put into it would be lost. So now this guy's thinking, okay. You can also, you know, maybe think of the wheels turning in his mind. All right, so I'm now on to a property now I've got to take care of this woman and I've got to take care of Naomi, really. I mean, and then I've got to take care of what other children come about. I mean, this, this is a expensive proposition all of a sudden. And then I'm not only have to take care of all of them, but I'm buying this field with a certain amount of money and I probably won't get to keep it for more than uh, 15 years or so. And he says, can't afford it. I would endanger my own estate. And they state the idea what he would pass on to his own children. It's too costly for me. Now, it's interesting here. Scripture nowhere condemns him for this, just like they didn't condemn Orpah in chapter one. But just like Orpah's decision highlighted the selflessness of Ruth's decision, so his decision highlights the fact that this was a costly, risky thing for Boaz to say. Okay, I'll do it, because the same risk Boaz was going to take. It was going to be an expensive proposition. It seemed to go against his perceived self-interest, especially if he's thinking in dower and sense terms. But Boaz says, I'll do it. And uh, he takes off his sandal, and it's like, wait a second. That's a weird custom, you take off your sandals. Um, And and that's true. That's kind of a weird custom, but I was thinking, you know what? 3,000 years from now, because the story cap occurs about 1,000 B.C., 3,000 years from now, People in another language are getting out their lexicons and translating some of our customs today. They're going to find those a little bit odd, right? Wait, okay, so these 21st century Americans, you know, they celebrated the birth of the Savior by hanging socks on them near the fireplace and filling them with candy? Is that right? And then, oh wait, they celebrated the resurrection by by talking about and, and celebrating a, a large, magical bunny that handed out painted hen's eggs? Am I reading this right? And, and, and what are these peeps they're talking about that the bunny gives away to? So that's not my lexicon anywhere, right? All right, so all right, we'll just go with it. This is how they did things. He handed the sandal, deal was done, and he announces. Boaz announces, it's a done deal. This is what I'm doing, and this is why I'm doing it, to raise up the name of the dead. And this this beautiful epilogue to the story. A child is born. We shouldn't take that for granted. Ruth lived, apparently, for 10 years as a young widow. She probably got married at 14 and 15. She lived for 10 years with her first husband, Milan, uh, without child. And it says the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son named Obed. And Obed, we're told, is going to be the grandfather of King David. And more than that, we know, the book doesn't have it here, Ruth doesn't have it, but we're able to look ahead and see that through that. God not only brought Naomi's life from emptiness to fullness, from bitterness to pleasantness, from, from death to life, but he did that same thing to Israel. Remember how we talked about how these, these narrative stories are operating on three levels? How is God? What is God doing? He's bringing the nation from emptiness to fullness, from dysfunction to glory. And he's doing that through this individual story of this poor Moabite widow and her selfless choice there in the plains of Moab and all the results of that. More than that, God's story of Israel is part of God's larger story of the redemption of all mankind. We see that here too because, as we looked at two weeks ago in the math. Uh, the genealogy in the book of Matthew. She is one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. God could have done it anyway, any way that he wanted to, but what he chose to do is bring forth the redemption of the world, to bring forth the hope of all people, the one who transforms everything in our life through Ruth and her selfish decision on the plains of of the Jordan River we have hope today we have hope today that this life has purpose and meaning because of the cross of Christ because of Ruth we have hope today that this life is not the end that there is a meaning beyond this that, that evil will not have the last word that there is a resurrection of all things because of Ruth now again I'm not saying God couldn't have done it another way. It's not like his plan is going to be banished if she makes the wrong choice here. I'm saying this is the way he chose to do it. I wonder what he'll choose to do that we won't see through our decisions. All right, so that's going to bring us then to the last part. And I want to talk about the meaning of this for our life here. And... uh back to this idea, the things that we don't see. The things that we don't see. And I, I want to just use the book of Ruth then to talk about my life and yours. And the things that are very real about our life that we do not see. Now, in some cases, it's because we are way too close to the situation. In some cases, it's because there are ways that God's working in the intermesh of our story and his story that we don't see. I'm going to ask a Nate and Levi to help me with something. I clued them in on this before. So go ahead and grab that rope. I I bought a rope, and you're going to see about 70 or 80 feet of this rope. No, we're not going to have a tug of war. Back up there just a little bit so we get the full 70 or 80 feet there. That's about good. So this rope is going to represent the timeline of your life. Uh, Hold up there a little higher if you would, or a little tauter. And um, this is the 70 or 80 years that you will be given in this body. And this right here, guess what this is, this white part. That's one year. So it's about a foot. If you're not an eternal creature, if there is no resurrection, then this is your life. And one year in relationship to this, should give us, um, maybe this visual will help us understand that there is a larger purpose, even on the plane of this 70 or 80, 90 years here. By the way, this little red mark right here, that's one week. Now here's what I'm trying to get at. The meaning of what happens in our week, we talk about, well, how, are, how was your week or whatever? And that's fine. But do we realize we're, we're looking at life for the most part on this macro level with the zoom lens all the way in? We're seeing this, when this is the reality. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that your life is circumscribed by these two points, though? Do you believe that after your death, so, Nate, you're the birth, you're the death, uh, that that's the end? Or do you believe that this life is a seed planted into an eternal life? In which case, it would almost be like you could stretch this around the globe, and this is one week. Thanks, guys. So what we're seeing in Ruth, and what I'm trying to visualize here, it's not that we don't see what's going on or we're we're getting the facts wrong, but without that larger picture, we're not going to get the context and the meaning of what happens in our life. We're not going to see all the things that we should. More specifically, I want to talk about three things that affect us that we do not see. First, how God works behind the scenes. And you see it in the book of Ruth, right? God is everywhere in these pages, and he's nowhere in these pages. God doesn't speak. He doesn't do any miracles other than providing conception. And yet, we can't read this Bible with any sort of spiritual discernment without understanding the key place that this story had and how God orchestrated and used this. But they didn't see that. They didn't see how God was working. In fact, you remember in chapter 1, Naomi, four different times, or in four various uh, ways, said, God's hand is against me. Well, I get that. Her husband's dead. Her two sons are dead. They've married 10 years so these Moabite girls. Never had any grandchildren. I can understand how she would interpret reality that way. But it wasn't the right interpretation. Why? Because there was a bigger picture and a longer time frame that she couldn't see, and that's us. We see, we feel what's happening in our life right now, this week, this year, this season of life, and yet we are eternal beings, and God is working in ways that we are not able to see. Corrie Ten Boom was a woman, many of you know. She was a Dutch woman who hid Jewish prisoners and went to the concentration camp support. Later on, when she would uh, speak in her elder years she became somewhat well known through the book The Hiding Place and she would go and often tell this, uh, recite this particular poem she didn't write it but she, she said this was kind of summarizing her view on life my life is but a weaving between my Lord and me I cannot choose the color he weaves steadily Oft times he weaves sorrow, and in foolish pride, I forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle ceases to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. And then she would often hold up this particular tapestry, the back side of it, and at the end hold up this side. We don't see that. We're living here, where it seems everything's a tangled mess. But God is working all those threads together to create something beautiful. We don't see, but here in the book of Ruth, we see the analogy in the picture. We say, God, I believe you're the same God. I make this my own. You are working behind the scenes. Uh, Secondly, here's something we don't see how suffering is the soil of glory. How suffering is the soil of glory. One of the things that keeps us from seeing God's good plan for us is the suffering that we have. We're all going to have it. Jesus had it. First the cross and then the crown. That's the rule for Christ and for those in Christ. New Testament flushes this out a little bit. Romans 8, I reckon our present sufferings are not worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed. Think about that for a second. Paul was a man who knew suffering, right? He knew it deeply. And yet he could think of all the beatings. He could think of all the, the lies. He could think of all the threats to his life. He could think of all the sleepless nights. He could think of the shipwrecks and the suffering and the people who had left him. And he says, it's almost like I can weigh these on a scale. On one side of all these sufferings and on the other side is the glory that will be revealed. And there's, there's nothing here compared to this. Wow. Wow. That glory must be something, if all the pain we feel in this life doesn't even fit, doesn't even weigh down the scale. First Peter, you greatly rejoice. You have to suffer now in all kinds of trials. I'm glad you put that in. It's not just one kind, a different kind. These have come so the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. Your faith and the genuineness of what will happen through that is greater than gold. James 1, consider pure joy when you find trials of different kinds because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. You ever ever seen an emperor moth? Isn't that a beautiful creature? I heard a story of a man who found a cocoon for an emperor moth. I'm not sure he knew what it was, but he knew it was a big cocoon. So he took it home to see what would emerge. and uh, And in time, he did see that the cocoon began to to crack open, and what was inside would soon burst forth. And yet, after after some initial cracking of the cocoon, it seemed like for a half hour there was very little progress. You know the moth inside would struggle, but it, it wouldn't seem to open very far. So the man did it a favor. He took a very small set of a uh, of scissors, and he opened that cocoon, separated it, and indeed the moth came out. Moth came out; its wings were shriveled and its body swollen. He assumed that would soon be corrected, but it wouldn't, because God had so arranged it. That it was by this process, the struggle by which the, the, this moth pushed its wings against this cocoon, that the, that it developed those wings, that the, that it grew strengthened and and even part of the nutrients and and parts of its body would, would transfer to that. What he thought was a favor turned out to be a disfigurement. God has an idea of glory that that moth could not see. God has an idea of glory for us that we cannot see And our sufferings. Our struggles are part of that. book of Hebrews even goes so far as to say that Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. You know why I love that verse? Because it tells me that the sufferings that we experience in life, my sufferings and yours, they're not punishments. Oh, they, they can be that. If we go on in unconfessed sin after God has pointed it out, we turn our back on him. Yes, he will bring discipline, but that's not. What's often happened, or I think usually happened, Jesus learned through what he suffered. Our suffering is a soil. All right, last part here then. What well, don't we see? We don't see how the seeds that we plant today are going to grow into the forest of tomorrow. A couple of weeks ago, I quoted a phrase. Uh, I didn't make it up. I heard it somewhere. You can count the seeds in, it, in an apple, you cannot count the apples in the seed. And uh, someone going through a very difficult uh, week sent me a, a text quoting that. And uh, I was very proud of this person for the way that their attitude was was very mature and godly, because they were they were embracing that. I could even go beyond that a little bit. This is the pine cone of a giant sequoia. And if any of you have ever been out there, you know that some of those tree trunks are almost the size of this stage. You can drive a car through many of them that they cut out many years ago. They wouldn't do that today, but you can drive a car right through many of the, of the tree trunks that they carved out in yesteryear. These are huge. In fact, by weight, these are the largest living things on earth when they are mature. And you know what? In this pine cone, there are actually around 200 seeds. Each one is able to create that kind of sequoia. And each one of those sequoias is able to drop more of these and produce more and more. And it's when they develop these cones, and usually the things that that release those seeds, by the way, sometimes an animal, like a squirrel, But more often it's either fire or long dry conditions that dry these things out and they spill open in the seeds, developing a new life. That's what I mean when I say we don't see how the seeds we plant today can grow to the forest of tomorrow. I remember being out in that giant sequoia forest. You know? I can't prove it, but I would guess that started with one seed. One seed that somehow found its way there, grew into a tree that in time established itself and over hundreds, even thousands of years, reproduced itself. Somewhere along the line, there was a first tree in that forest. Before that, there was a first seed. You know, Ruth didn't see. How could she? when she was there hugging Naomi's neck and making the choice to go back to share her poverty, she couldn't see. I wonder what you and I won't see. I wonder what you and I we will look back on in the age of eternity and say, that was a seed. That small act of kindness I did for someone, that small faithfulness to a ministry in the church that I served in, that small Small way that I befriended someone at school or at work or in my neighborhood that just needed a friend. The small thing I, I gave, the small check I wrote. That was a, that was a seed. Yeah. Because that's who God is. The God who takes a seed that Ruth planted there on the, on the bank of the Jordan River. And he brought forth a kingdom out of it. Well, I want us to come back to Ruth for one final thing here because ultimately we have to be reminded that this isn't a story where Ruth is the hero or Naomi is a hero or Boaz is a hero. But hopefully all through all this we've seen God's the hero of the story. God is the one working and doing. So let's go back to that last scene in Ruth as they put the, this baby Obed upon her lap the women around exclaiming, Naomi has a son. And you see gray-haired Naomi snuggled up with a newborn under breast. All the women around exclaiming praises. What does she see? She sees the child there. Beyond them, she sees brave and kind Ruth, the daughter who is indeed better than seven sons. And by her side, she sees selfless and wise Boaz, who has done his part in bringing her security and joy. Behind them both, though, she sees someone else. She sees Yahweh, the Lord, who has indeed showed that her husband's name, Elimelech, would not only not be extinct, but would have its full meaning realized. God is king.